Welcome, everyone, through all time and space to an all-new episode of Weebs on the Weekends, a podcast where we break down the anime news highlights of the week and give a retrospective look at anime that premiered 10 years ago. Today's episode will be covering the news from the fourth week of May 2021 and give our thoughts on whether to resurrect or rebury the 2011 anime film Up on Poppy Hill. My name is Jay Johnson, part-time weeb and full-time English language sensei, and with me, as always, is my co-host Sam Martinez, part-time weeb and full-time automail mechanic. Now, Sam, I am super cold right now because it has Why? been surprisingly cold here for in being the last week of May. And let's see, uh, a couple of days ago, it snowed. Oh, uh, yesterday it rained, and then like the day before that, it was like sunny, seventy degrees. I was like wearing shorts. I do. I was sweating in my teacher lab coat, and kids were outside playing basketball, being youthful in their time in their last week of school. But yeah, and now it's freezing, and I'm in like this old, not old Russian, but very, <laughs> very odd concrete Russian architecture. With and yeah, girls. Russian still remains in your description. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, so like how it's built is just like it insulates you to the coldness and my hands are freezing. So I am kind Why of... Why don't you put on some gloves? Because uh, I can't write good. I can't write good if I have gloves on. And I like to touch my face and be all fully not vaccinated. Well, fully vaccinated. And <laughs> like, you know, oh, yes. Uh, yes, I can get contaminated all I want, but yeah, I am kind of cranky, Sam, but how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's kind of funny that you mentioned about the snow. It reminds me of a webcomic that I saw the other day where essentially, I, I don't know if you've seen, but it's, you probably might have seen it. It's like this disgruntled old rabbit and like he usually, usually see him smoking. It was just some stills with him and some snowmen. Basically like the snowman's like acting like they're real. Like there was this one snowman in his front yard that was trying to kill himself by jumping in front of a snowplow. And the uh, rabbit brings him into the house, tries to, you know, talk him down and stuff like that. And the rabbit ends up giving him hot cocoa. And because he's a snowman, that ends up making him melt. And then the next scene, you see the rabbit being hauled away by the police and the snowman's remains with the hot cocoa in his body and stuff like that. It's... I'm sorry. That, that, that's what that, that just reminded me of. A little, a little bit dark to start off with, but yeah. Um, so, were, were you guys? Did you guys have enough snow to where you can make snowman and stuff like that? Is that something that they do in your neck of the woods? What, what do they normally do with the snow and ice? Uh, I've seen a lot of snow riding, which is a very odd kind of pastime. I see a lot of elderly yes, it's people not like doing. people peeing in the snow, is it? What, what's snow riding? Oh, no. It's just like forming out um, words and messages to other people. And it's very like oh. wholesome. Like even at the very start of like this latest lockdown was like a lot of people writing in the snow like hashtag stay home <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> very odd. like i don't really see any profanity and it feels like a very culturally wholesome thing that most people do yeah. is like people will just leave like kind messages in the snow so like you're just walking past on a sidewalk and you like see something like take care of yourself or make sure to wear an extra layer like something like very short that you can like just you know scoot out in a couple of minutes with your foot. So that's the thing, not really snowmen to be suicidal uh, over about, but yeah, I like <laughs> snow riding. Yeah. But yeah, interesting time to be here because 
last week of May, you kind of expect it to be spring, but it was just 30 degrees and now it's like dropping to below that. So I'm interested to have summer come up pretty soon, I hope. But Sam, we have news today and we have a discussion yes. about another Studio Ghibli movie that we just followed up with, or we're following up from Arietti, the borrowers that we talked about before. But I have the news for us. Are you ready for the news? Let's do the news! All right, the news. And let's start off with a news story that I think you might like the most, Sam, because okay. I'm always caring about your feelings, is as our always. first news story. As always, our time codes are going to be in the description. And that first news story is that the Gundam Seed director, I forgot his name already, but the Gundam Seed director is making an anime short for the life-size Gundam project. And this is a follow-up story to, wow, it's been a couple of months that we talked about this last. Oh, well, we yes. talked about this with the Gundam Unicorn episodes that we talked about for like seven episodes of the eight, nine, ten episodes of the podcast. But yes. this is that the Shanghai life-size Gundam project has finally been revealed or had a grand opening. Did you happen to turn in for the grand opening ceremony that happened yesterday on the 28th of May? Uh, no, it was yes. Damn. No, I, I didn't have a chance to do that. But it's it's funny that you had brought this news up because I was talking to one of my other friends who's into Gundam and they had mentioned how essentially uh, Sunrise had announced that they're going to be doing a new Gundam Seed franchise. It's supposed to take place in between the already established uh, Seed series. So I think this is, you know, just hyping that news up a little bit more. And it's just all very well timed. I definitely want to go back and see what that short is. Oh, it's not out yet. So it is. Oh. Well, what was released was a 10 minute commentary that was streamed by Billy Billy. I think that's how you pronounce the company, the Chinese company that kind of competes with Amazon is that okay. they streamed a 10 minute short, basically just behind the scenes of showing the whole building process of the Gundam yeah. where it basically arrived in Shanghai about a month ago and it was fully built around that time a month ago, but the grand opening just happened uh, yesterday or, you know, the 28th of May. And what else was released was the fact that, Oh, we, well, we talked about this before that, the Gundam Life Size pro program is going abroad and that this was the first instance. So we'll be seeing a lot of Gundams pop up all over the place. But the Freedom Gundam, Freedom Gundam, which is now in Shanghai, is 70 feet tall. And it's placed outside of Misu, Misu Shopping Park in Shanghai. So if you ever find yourself in Shanghai, you can check out the Gundam for once. You don't even have to go to Japan now. I wonder, do we know if this guy can move very much like the uh, Gundam Unicorn or the uh, RX-78 in Japan? Because I saw there was a video where they had the uh, Granddaddy Gundam and they showed that he could move. Like uh, he, his arms and his legs were uh, super opposable. Exactly. Yeah, you're right about that. And yeah, the Gundam Unicorn does transform into its battle mode or destroyer mode. Yeah. I forgot what it's. Yeah. Okay. Good. 
I've absorbed so much knowledge from the Gundam franchise. For <laughs> but yeah, as it looks like that the Freedom Gundam actually doesn't transform, even though it has those giant kind of wings on its back, I believe. Uh, unless I'm misunderstanding about how those wings work. Are they boosters or are they actually wings wings? like? They're boosters. I, I'm not too familiar with the Seed franchise, but I do know that like they're, they're, they mainly work as boosters. But still, like I would think that if they can make the granddaddy move his uh, arms and legs, I would think that they can make him move too. But it seems like from from the way that the article states it, it seems like it's just like a statue. Yeah, it's definitely a statue. I mean, it does glow up, so it has kind of like a okay, you know, a visual appeal to it because it's really close to the mall. So like, if you ever look at like where it is, it's like basically leaning against the mall, and I don't think it has that room to maneuver. Like, quick tangent, right? So. This re- sort of reminds me of something that I learned earlier in the week. Apparently, the Easter Island heads, how they have bodies underneath the heads once you start digging into the ground. And, you know, right now we're thinking, it's like, why, like, how do they make these uh, Easter Island uh, head statues? And, like, why are they all around like this, right? So I'm thinking just, like, far off into the future, I think, like, if the Gundams are kept up well enough, Maybe they'll still be around and people will be like, why are these robotic statues at these specific points in the world, in the globe? Does this mean something? Was this supposed to be a defense mechanism or something like that? I don't know. It's it's, it's just kind of cool. Oh, yeah. So that kind of creative lore that's like, why do these exist? Or same thing, like, how were the pyramids built? Of course, aliens, because no human <laughs> build this. But yeah. Like the mysteries of, of ancient engineering is like kind of still a mystery today. So that's our first news story. Our second news story is another basically follow-up news story. And this is some more um, Attack on Titan news where the Attack on Titan, uh, the first two chapters of the manga was printed into a like a large uh, commemorative version of itself. So it has taken the Guinness World Record for largest comic book published. So as you reported, I believe this was your story, Sam, but mm-hmm. it was a celebratory kind of exercise in that the manga had finished with most recently had the studio for season four switched over from Wit Studio, Wit Studio, Wit Studio to MAPPA and that the book was basically like as tall as a half Asian man. I don't know yes. how, how really like the dimensions of it is like really unclear. It says one meter, but I really don't know what a meter is technically. A meter is essentially like a yard almost. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause so like the uh, author of the manga, uh, Yas, uh, Hajime Isayama. Isayama. Yeah. And it's basically like he holds, he holds it up to himself and basically he could like scoot down under it like behind it and hide himself completely but it's (laughs) the size of it is like one meter by i believe uh 70 centimeters but it's a pretty thick book it went for uh 1500 usd 100 copies were only made of it and it sold out under two minutes essentially uh weighs about 30 pounds and oh my goodness and the one comic book that it replaced or supplanted was monica's gang which is a brazilian a comic book series has been long running as well 
or not as well, but it's been long running and it kind of falls into that category of like family comedy, kind of like Peanuts or yeah. I guess you could kind of extend that to Rugrats. But yeah, it's very interesting that um, this is like, again, now that Attack on Titan has like kind of this permanent place in like the record books and I'm glad that it's happened. Anything to say about this? I know it's like just a follow-up story to something that you Oh, no, 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 no. Like, like, like you said, I'm glad that they got recognized for it. I, I didn't realize that there was a record hoarder for the largest comic book like that. So it's just interesting. Um, I, I kind of want to see like why Monica's gang, you know, like what, how big that book was compared to this one. In, in, in that regard and also as i'm looking at this picture it sort of just reminds me that whenever you hear about the the guinness uh book of world records you always see the pictures of the people who receives it but you never really see uh an official for guinness there so i don't know who to look for i think like i'm just gonna like run onto the street and like somebody just like uh, bump into me and it's like Here's your here's your uh, paper for breaking the record, and I look around and like I can't see the person. I just have this certificate in my hand. It's the difference between the two books was like very marginal at best because I did look yeah. at the comparison and it's like you could like you can put the Monica's gang version just on top of it and it's like has that very small oh. of it essentially so you know they did it you know of course they did it on purpose any record holder doesn't like try to blow out the previous uh winner <laughs> they always try to do it like by a just slightly better slightly better margin so they they, they went the prices right route they're like oh two thousand and one <laughs> <laughs> exactly so that's our catch-up from previous news stories let's go into some new news stories for this week and our third news story is that the background art studio bamboo has released their first audiobook audiobook art book they are an animation studio so of course that would be very book. interesting an audio art book i wonder how that would go it's just going to, yeah, it's, it's basically a book for blind people, essentially. They're just describing the artwork. But yes, Studio Bamboo is kind of, again, behind the scenes of a lot of great anime that we've even talked about over the podcast, where we have talked about Onahana, Durara, uh, the Ghost in the Shell, Solid State Society, the Cold Academy, Steinskate which is a foreshadowing, but <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm very interested in this book. It is only in Japanese at the moment and you can get it through Amazon Japan because of course, Amazon is one of those region locked services. And the book is basically a compilation of over 500 art pieces done by oh, the wow. studio, as well as including interviews by the artists some commentary on certain pieces, on the, the process they go through doing background art. Again, that's one of those parts of animation that goes very easily overlooked by your, not generic, but, you know, your average anime viewer because, you know, you're so focused on the animation going on that you don't actually pay attention to the backgrounds. But for what Bamboo does is just so eye-catching. So... The ones that we know probably now is that they do the background work for Vivi. I don't know the full. Oh, okay. I don't know the full name of Vivi, but it premiered this season about Studio Wit's property of a cyborg Terminator from the future 
but I guess that's kind that of that sings uh, children's lullabies. <laughs> yeah, and kids. <laughs> um, they also worked on Vinland Saga, which was again like one of the great modern, maybe call it a modern classic. But yeah, yeah. Vinland Saga. Saga. They also worked on Yusuke. Yusuke, which premiered this season as well on Netflix. They also did the openings to Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh, they did. No wonder it was so pretty. I'm looking at some of that art, and it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. So uh, any interest in buying an art book for $32 or through, uh, 32 USD? I'm kind of wondering how that would work if I get a VPN and I order it through uh, Amazon Japan. Would I still be guaranteed the two-day shipping? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's how that works, but you never know with Japanese um, people. They'll <laughs> probably have a teleporter and it's probably already on your doorstep right now. So they are. But yeah, this, I was looking at this and if they ever do get around to a English version of this, then I would definitely buy it because just looking at some of the other big titles like Sword Art Online they do and for mm-hmm. all the terrible things about Sword Art Online or SAO, the background art, like the design to Einkrad, I believe that's the castle. But yeah, the backgrounds for Sword Online is so picturesque, even how they go into like very nuanced details and dungeon designs is like so eye-catching. So like background art is something that you know you start paying more attention to for everything you know that goes into it. I guess Made in Abyss was like the first instance I really noticed background art because I remember this vividly because there's an orphanage or there's a place that basically take cares of the children that, um, no, you're correct. It would be an orphanage. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And basically like there's this orphanage and then there's a pathway to the orphanage that's paved, but then like very close to that pathway is like this dirt, um, dirt path that's basically been stomped on by children and you kind of see that in all this subtle world design and that's kind of what background art does and that's why i wanted to include the story as saying oh yes we appreciate background art here on weebs on the weekends but i I, I just wanted to mention too because like i'm looking at uh, the article and they also mentioned great pretender and that is a series that has great uh, background art too. I mean, definitely the the characters, the way the the fluidity of the animation works too. But the backgrounds are really great. Like especially in the scenes when you have the, I don't know what it's called, but essentially like a cross country uh, flying race. Basically, seeing the planes fly through the city. That's like a pseudo Dubai, but not really. It was just very very well done. So no, I, I definitely uh, know, know what you're saying. I agree with you that like this studio did very well in their background design. Yeah, I mean, they have over 100 series that they have worked on before, and I'm not even mentioning like Eden of the East and Eccentric Family. So yeah, like Great Pretender, like you just mentioned, is like, yeah, they have a long resume of great work and background design. So oh, yeah. fourth news story for the week is somewhat related to the previous one because... Studio Bamboo also worked on the movie of Lupin III versus Detective Conan. So the fourth news story for the week is that Lupin III or Lupin, the Lupin III franchise gets its sixth anime series or sixth <laughs> anime series for its 50th anniversary. And this is something I wanted to include because I have no idea who Lupin is. 
And what you've never so, seen Castle of Cagliostro? Exactly. So that's why I wanted to bring it up to you, Sam. So okay. can you tell me something about Lupin the Third? Because I've always associated with him with Conan and Sailor Moon. So it always feels like somewhat <laughs> of the same universe to me. But can you tell me about Lupin so, the Third? So with 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 Conan. Um, no, because there's there's a character that uh, there, there's a character in in a top hat and white suit that looks a little bit like tuxedo tuxedo mask that sort of bridges the world of Conan and Lupin the Third together. But essentially, the reason why they're so related is because the premise of Lupin is he I don't know if he comes from a long line of thieves, but he's essentially. Uh, a thief that takes on the moniker of Lupin from the uh, French uh, book known as Lupin the uh, Gentleman Thief, where essentially he announces to the world or to police officers, hey, I'm going to go and steal this thing on this day. Just try to stop me. And he pulls it off. So it's sort of like that good wacky heist type of vibes that's uh sort of into like a mystery and suspense because you don't know how he's going to pull off the caper him and his gang are always uh they're uh you know going through things and it's it's just done very well i want to say like the first stuff that i've seen of his is in castle cagliostro i haven't really seen much of his other stuff but i'm more interested now because Netflix, they have a live action adaptation that's actually in French from France. That's uh, similar where a guy sort of doesn't necessarily take on the moniker, but his works are just very, very influenced by Lupin and his exploits. And that that was sort of one thing that I wanted to uh, poke your brain about as well, because you said that you've ne- like have you this is your first time ever hearing like the f- uh, the word or the moniker Lupin, correct? Only through uh, the Japanese works. Yes, exactly. So I mean, it's yeah. always been around in the you know anime community of like who that character is. I always I've seen I know his I know his identity. I guess I've always kind of thought of him as like the Spike Seagull black pink panther kind of yeah in my mind i'm kind of like associated with that essentially because because again like the new story is that this is getting its sixth anime um adaptation or installment so that means it has five other series there's multiple movies there's a spin-off series there's <laughs> a live action is there a live action i'm forgetting but there's definitely sure. like yearly specials that have always had the title loop in the third so i know about it for its uh, abundance in the community but i've never really you know consumed any of it before but i would say like it's a fun romp um in regards to mysteries because you're you're uh well acquainted with mysteries i would say like with you you may be a little bit wary mainly because like you said once you've seen a mystery somewhere else you're going to recognize it in other places you may have that with him but it's done well i guess like it's a little bit like the great pretender where essentially it's just a lot of misdirection in what his true goal is and how he's going to pull something off so there's that but i would the 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 main reason why i asked you that question was because thinking back on this article it's just very interesting because with as popular as uh the series uh the uh, gentleman thief lupin lupin it makes you think that like 
it's that uh, it's very very popular, right? That you would see like a whole bunch of French uh, films or like series that have great acclaim because of the series, much like how Sherlock Holmes, right? Everybody knows Sherlock Holmes, how popular it is, and how there's many different iterations of it, and you have maybe twenty plus uh, different iterations of it from England alone. And yet with Lupin, it's weird how the biggest or at least like the most notable uh, iteration of this character is from a Japanese uh, culture or from, from a culture that isn't from France. Like, like I said, the first time that I've heard or seen an actual French work that has Lupin in the title is on Netflix. And that was maybe last year. So so sort of wanted to get your thoughts on that if you had any oh just like why hasn't his like his renounce kind of like spread out through the media yeah so yeah it's obviously represented really strongly in the anime community in japan i mean you have to look at the part five the you know the most recent one premiered mm-hmm. in 2018 previously part four premiered in 2015 and i think that kind of is an indicator about why Lupin didn't catch on because part three came out 30 years ago, or, you know, the difference between part three and part four. And I think it's just a thing of maybe that kind of detective or that kind of criminal. Now I'm kind of thinking about there's an episode in Full Metal Alchemist with a burglar that does the same thing. Like she announces that I'm going to steal this thing. And then, she steals it or yeah, that kind of premise has like been replicated in other mediums, but for that one character to not basically catch on to get a lot of different uh, versions of it is very odd. Now that I'm thinking about it out loud, it's Mm. a situation of probably something that is so culturally specific. Again, like the reason why I've never caught on to is because it looked too slapstick for me and I don't really need the comedy of the gag slapstick nature. So maybe that's it, but maybe it's something about the wacky cast isn't really endearing or something about how you're rooting for the bad guy essentially, but does he have like a good motive for stealing or is he like a good guy? Like what's the appeal? No, no, no. Like, like you say, he's essentially a bad guy with a heart of gold. So it sort of reminds me if you ever played uh, any of the Sly Cooper games from the PlayStation um, from Sony, essentially, you know, he, he's a good guy. He, uh, his family uh, um, background is that, you know, they steal. But like in Sly Cooper's case, the, what makes him more endearing is that he steals from other thieves, right? So it's kind of good, sort of like that Robin Hood type feel. And but with Lupin, it doesn't matter who it is. He, he like if, it could be like a museum or something else like that. And in Cagliostro, in the castle of Cagliostro, it really showcases like his heart of gold because like as he's going in and he's trying to steal this jewel or this gem, he, he finds out the um the meaning that it has to this one person and her family essentially like about like their social standings and what happened to her family when that jewel was no longer in their possession. And so like you, you get to see that, you know, like he, 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 he is compassionate. And from what I can tell, it seems like he doesn't kill on his capers. So like he does things in a violently nonviolent way. 
like you said, just very slapstick, a little wholesome. So it could be very, very hard to pull off, especially nowadays when you have to uh, drop uh, uh, swear words to stay relevant. Yeah. So like even with uh, the most recent, uh, oh, what's his name? The director's name to do that directed one of the Star Wars movie, but he does Knives Out and yes. like that kind of murder mystery kind of the idea of like a detective going against like well that's a detective story but yeah like we really haven't seen in like the west adaptation like good thief movies in a long time that's kind of something that's been like whittled out of like even the like modern culture that you know these good guys but they steal from people so uh just to close up the news with the real quick video game anime story is that sega is going to release a demon slayer video game later this year and this is done by cyber connect 2 which is done the naruto ultimate ninja series so okay. if you look at the promotional uh, video for the game it's very much in the art style of those other games and it's like it isn't the ufotable kind of <laughs> flawless animation to it but it's pretty close it does look like a not knockoff version but it looks like a good enough approximation to the anime yeah. so it's going to be basically as like the naruto games where it's just basically a retelling of the first season and now that season two has been announced we have had the movie it's probably going to kind of follow the same way of the my hero for justice my Hero Academia, I think those Heroes for Justice is the yeah. title of the game, kind of uh, basically updates the game just with new characters as they appear. But basically all the characters that you see in the first season of Demon Slayer is going to be in the game, and it's a fighting game, and that's basically essentially it. So it's going to have the full English and Japanese cast returning to Ooh, voice characters. That's, that, that's, that's, that's nice of them. Yeah, very nice. And that's is going to be released on PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and PC. So, Sam, are you interested in getting this game when it comes out? It's very, very interesting. It's uh, Looking at it, it sort of reminds me uh, a little bit of the Afro Samurai game I, because I ended up I, – I got that when that was out. But when that one came out, all of the Afro Samurai was out. And as, as you mentioned, like it does uh, remind me of – the Naruto uh, franchises as well. However, I want to see a little bit more of gameplay because I want to know if it's going to be like Naruto where it's pseudo open world where you can move around or if it's going to be a traditional fighting game where it's like Street Fighter and you just have to side screen. But if it's if it's by the people who did the Naruto games, I it will it'll probably be more like where you have that arena that you can sort of walk around on have that 3d view of a fighting game. And that was okay. It was kind of clunky, but hopefully they had uh, tightened it up a little bit and it will, it will just be very interesting to see how some of these fights take place. Like more, for instance, the, the fight with the guy with the arrows to see how that's going to uh, take place in the game because, or the guy with the drums because those two fights would be pretty fun if done very well. Right, yes. With all the demons of variety's attack. Yeah, I also saw a fan animation of 
the Demon Slayer and the opening of Bleach. And I was like, that's what this game needs. It needs a, a <laughs> yes. crossover event with Bleach characters because that now that Bleach is coming back for its a thousand year war arc a thousand year war arc yep. yeah so it's like maybe it's time to have a good crossover anime game that's not jump force because that kind of left a weird taste in people's mouths after that premiere but that ends the news for us this week sam and you have our 10-year discussion about another uh, studio ghibli movie up on poppy hill or from up on poppy hill now i had not seen this and this is your pick so can you tell us why you picked it? <laughs> because I didn't see it too. <laughs> so we're both going in here pretty not 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 pretty blind. Well, yeah, pretty blind. But uh essentially the reason why I chose this was this was one of the Ghibli films that I hadn't seen much like Arietti. I didn't hear too much about it, but when I saw it, I thought about much like uh The Wind Rises where I sort of just like lumped those two together because it's like it felt more realistic in how it portrays its characters. And it also what I don't know, I, I guess like if, if it, like from from the trailers I've seen, like it felt like it was a light uh, period piece. It may have to do a romance. I didn't know, but I uh, didn't read. I didn't watch it. I didn't hear much about it other than the fact that it came out. But since it's coming up on its uh, 10 years, I figured, you know, we should give it a shot and give it its due. What about you, Jay? Were you acquainted with this at all? You said that you hadn't seen it, but did you at least hear about it? I had no idea that this even existed until you put it on the schedule. Yeah, it's very odd that how my consumption of Studio Ghibli movies has went, that yes. after basically like maybe what you call the core or maybe the golden age of Studio Ghibli movies, just everything from you know like when we were growing up of the princess mononoke's the totoro moving castle how's moving castles like mm -hmm. spirit away like basically when spirit away finished in 2001 i believe you're like oh i saw the best i don't need to watch anymore <laughs> well essentially that but it's also that because of its relationship or being a competitor of uh, disney it's always been in my mind that Studio Ghibli movies are just for kids, essentially. So yeah. after I was, quote unquote, not a kid anymore, I was like, oh, I'm too old for Studio Ghibli movies. But then they hit you with a film like this. But uh, I, I would say that, that that is kind of fair because around that same time, too, when they released uh, Mononoke and Howl's Moving Castle, they released Kiki's Delivery Service, right? Which watching that, that is specifically towards like a target audience. But then again, you know, we, we've watched Princess Mononoke, which is really heavy and can be graphic at times. So it's like when a Ghibli movie comes out, you don't know if it's going to be strictly for kids or not, you know? Yeah, it's just always fallen into that idea of anime movies are just kids movies, <laughs> whatever that may mean, even though that's never been the case because there are some very graphic early uh, animes or animated movies. I mean, even the Akira, and there's a very, that's a very graphic movie and it's not oh, kid friendly yeah. at all. But, you know, the idea in the West that anything that's animated is just for kids. And even now that idea is still perpetuated where nothing animated is really taken seriously. Like it has its own category in the Oscars, an animated movie is not going to win best movie of the year 
for the Oscars or how the voting body kind of thinks of what yeah. a best of the year movie should be. It should have real people in it, essentially. But we have a good structure for talking about anime movies, Sam. So how do you want to start? Yes. So uh, first we're going to start off with our weeb uh, opinion, which is our do or die soapbox stance and on the movie that we have seen. And as we said, I'll start off first. My opinion on From Up on Poppy Hill, it is the happy version of Grave of the Fireflies, and that's its downfall. That's why it's not as popular, why nobody heard about it. I, I guess well because like you said like when when you when they when they hit us with this film like they they really do deal with heavy stuff and heavy events because they talk about how the 64 Olympics in Tokyo was changing things you know they were uh, like this is right after World War II how they essentially want to show the world that you know their democracy works how you know they are on everybody's team well, does go around and uh they're going through and they're essentially like tearing down older buildings and essentially it's it's weird because you watch these kids like they are sort of like rising up against the man saying no we like this old stuff which is totally reverse of what is today nowadays you'll see uh kids be like you're too like you don't know nothing old man make way for the new whereas the kids in these films it's it's sort of backwards and they also deal with um kids essentially being orphaned by the war and even touch lightly touch upon uh the feelings or like the uh, the subject of you know, men going off to war and coming back home with a baby, right? They even touch on that a little bit and how that messes up the family dynamic, even when uh, things like with the main character, how she essentially has to become the adult because her mom is off in a different country learning medicine so that she can come back and provide for her family a little bit better. But she's stressed because of what their family has to do. Like they deal with very, very adult things, but it's all packaged in a very, uh, lighthearted box. Whereas with Engrave of the Fireflies, they make you sit and think and feel about these themes because of how gritty and in your face it is. And I think that because on Poppy Hill takes a more, uh, happy approach to it, that people are off put, uh, by it at first because it's like oh it's just another romance film and they won't take uh, a second thought uh, to sit down and watch it okay that makes sense so I wanted to say so for my weep opinion I wanted to say something along the lines of this is the most departs the most from the identity of what a Studio Ghibli movie is but I haven't seen uh, The Wind Rises which is like basically the follow up movie not follow-up movie, but it basically follows this in 2013. So I can't say that for sure since I don't have anything compared to. But yes. I want to say, given that I've seen two Goro Miyazaki movies, now you have seen Earwig and The Witch, and yes. I've seen Earth Tale in this. So maybe we have a collective knowledge about this. But my <laughs> opinion is that Goro Miyazaki is never going to be Hayao Miyazaki. And that might sound something like obvious, 
But mm-hmm. it is a case of, you know, son following the father, given that Tales from Earthsea was kind of an original project um, from Goro, where he basically tried to like, carry the weight. Did, did the book come out before the movie or after? Uh, for Earth Tale? Yeah. Oh, I just mean of the idea of he was putting his name out there, not that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 sort of, he sort of wanted to do his own thing. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Exactly. So this is more of a collaboration work, and you definitely see that in how smooth the animation style is, but you also see Goro's Miyazaki. Okay, I'm just going to call the Goro and Hayo. But Goro, the son, is essentially, he has this very distinct style of taking a lot of moments that I think Hayo, his father, would have missed out on. Yeah. He basically slows down the plot. The whole runtime of this movie takes place over several months of these students' careers and like this love story. As showing how they're going to work, they're getting involved in these protests, they go into a lot of just everyday situations like buying food from food stalls and just riding bikes a lot of places and being in class yeah. and like these very small intimate moments. Like you can very much see a strong sense of cinematography and direction in this animation. And I want to say that a part of my weeb opinion is that Goro Miyazaki should have just went somewhere else. <laughs> is that his style yeah. is so in tuned with his father's? Is that maybe it's maybe strongly separated in Earwig and the Witch that you've seen? But for right now, from all the works that I've seen that he's done, that I don't think he'll be able to step out of his father's shadow, even though how big that shadow is. But with him learning everything under his father, working in the same studio, basically having a similar uh, sensibleness to their animation styles, even though he has a distinct one from Hayao. It's just that he it's hard to see where his career is going to go. And I would say right now that he's never going to be, he's never going to surpass his father because he's too much like his father, essentially. So do you have any feelings about Earwig and the Witch to share? So it's interesting that you said about the pacing because the pacing from Up on Poppy Hill, it worked for the story because it was a little bit about romance. Like you said, you were able to slow down uh, like the scene where they're making copies of the newspaper, even though like it was silent and stuff like like you said, that was an intimate moment for them where they were able to work. Like it showed that they could work together without having to speak to each other, right? It worked for that story. With Earwig and the Witch, the pacing was so weird. And it's the only thing I can compare it to is Arietti, because like with Arietti, you even though the end of the series, it felt like more stories can be told. Right, it can still be a standalone story, right? Because we know that Arietti was based off a book series, and Earwig and the Witch, it's based off of a book series too. But essentially, the end of the movie promises more movies to come afterwards, right? Like it seems like he legit just followed the book word for word, right? Whereas, like, I'm I'm sitting here and like it feels drawn out. It's like okay, it seems like he's taking more cues from the books and i'm also a little bit annoyed because this is 
also one of those works that's geared towards younger audiences, a little bit like Kiki's Delivery Service, because I'm picking up what they're putting down. I can see like the history of the characters and things like that. I'm like, okay, just move the story along so that we can understand, you know, the, uh, uh, the plot a little bit more. It's like, move it, move it, move it, move it. But, you know, he, he, he just, it, it seems like he just sticks to his structure and his formula. And like, by the end of the film, you're like, okay, it seems like there's going to be another movie, but because of how studio Ghibli is, they don't really do like sequel films. So it's sort of frustrating in that sense. Like you said, it seems like he follows his father a little bit to the T rather than trying to make his own thing. Whereas Earwig and the Witch, it could have been a compilation of multiple books, right, within that series. But it seems like he just took the first book and just delved into that. The art design, the characters, and the effects in it were pretty good, especially with the magical stuff that happened. But because of the story and how it was portrayed, it seemed like it was just very, very slow and cumbersome a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be very telling of after Hayao Miyazaki passes away, which is going to be a very hella sad day. But when he does and Goro Miyazaki takes over again, like to say, like, what is his place going to be in the industry after his father passed away? Is he... He's going to have to deal with the sense of people are going to say, oh, are you going to do what your father does? Or are you going to try to um, surpass him in any way? And like, that's not the job of creators to follow in their footsteps of their father. I think about Stephen King and Joe Hill. Um, Joe Hill, again, is uh, a pen name that Stephen King's son uses for Mm -hmm. in his work. And like he does so much good horror like Nosferatu is my favorite work by Joe Hill and I think it just outpaces everything Stephen King does that's not fair to say it's just that Stephen King has a particular style he has a certain style like you said like it seems like with 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 those two uh the son really honed in on what worked for him he's still a writer but you know he does it in his own way whereas with Goro he's trying to learn what he can from his father which I mean that's fine you have to start somewhere, but like you said, he needs to branch out and sort of do his own thing. Otherwise, he's going to fall prey to the crippling shadow that's there in front of him. But do we want to uh, go and talk a little bit about the voice actors, or do we want to go on to the synopsis? Oh, yeah, we can talk, talk about, a little bit about the story. Yeah, the little synopsis. Is, you can hit us up with the synopsis. Okay. So essentially, the synopsis of the story is we follow a family that basically rents out this boarding house called uh, Colquitt Manor. And the family um, – that the main character that we follow is Umi Matazaki. And as I mentioned earlier, she essentially acts as the caretaker for the boarding house. She cooks and uh, she cleans for the boarding house members like makes their uh, breakfast and their dinner because her mother is across the sea uh, studying to become a doctor. And this is also in the time where the 64 Olympics is supposed to take place in Tokyo. And again, they're trying to take out the old and replace it with the new. And there is this particular building in her school that's known as the Latin Quarter Club that has all these clubs that's are surprisingly male dominated and the 
male uh, the, the members of these clubs don't want the uh, they, they don't want the uh, building taken down because of what it means to them. And one of these men, uh, one of these uh, male students that she runs into is a uh, male student known as Shun, where she learns uh, that uh, she begins to uh, fall for him romantically. They become a little bit closer. And he was in the the circumstances of his birth are unclear, and so they go on that journey together. And again, it showcases a little bit on uh, what it's like to deal with the fallout of war and some of the very real uh, consequences that come from that that these younger uh, people have to deal with. That doesn't necessarily have to be the choices that they made themselves and the genre for this film it's historical romance school and shoujo and it's also rated g for all ages so uh jay uh throughout this uh film were there any particular moments or any particular lines that stood out to you well, I like that one of your well, in your weeb opinion, you say that why this isn't as popular uh, for its over, I guess celebration uh, celebration of you know life. It's very odd that <laughs> this does pair well with Grave of the Fireflies because one one is about destruction and survival. The other one is about flourishing and essentially finding yourself. Where this is very much, like you said, it is in the genre of historic because it very much focuses on how Japan is as a country and how Japanese people are in this time period where this is post the 1950s boom that happened in Japan and that you see a lot of the feature or the characters of the cast. We'll talk about cast in a little bit, but it's very much the town of Yokohama is, that, is a character as well because you get this sense of the bustling life that's going on. You get a sense of the urbanization that's going on, the advancement of technology as well. Because again, one of the main activities that they focus on in the club is, of the school, is the uh, printing club against the printing of a newspaper. And then the thing that really caught me with this movie are, again, the quiet moments. That's why I said my real opinion was that there's a lot of quiet moments of things characters are doing like how quiet you are in your you know your own private life that if someone puts a camera around uh around in you um uh, around you in your normal life like how much are you doing really like are you singing to yourself are you are you singing to yourself like how loud are you in your own private moments and there's a small moment where yumi I think that's the girl's name, Yumi. And she pans over and there's just beautiful portraits. And I forgot the art style of it, but it's basically blotches essentially. But that moment is just so quiet. You're just stuck in this moment. You're just, you're left in so many moments in this film just to meditate. So like every single moment is memorable for me for that reason. How about you? No, and I would say I like that you brought up the uh, picture because it, uh, made me forget something about the synopsis that that I forgot to mention because Umi's father worked on a ship. He was he was a captain and he ended up uh, getting lost at sea. 
because of the war, but he taught her how to speak with flags. Uh, and that's the thing that they go throughout the film. Essentially, she's raising up these flags, trying to essentially uh, call her father back home. And they deal with the themes of that. I would say, like, there, there are so many good moments, right, with um, this film. Uh, essentially, like, uh, her with Shun and the vice president, not the vice president, but the president of the uh, uh, Latin Quarter, how they go to the superintendent and they talk to him. And, like, it, it feels like one of those... 80s or 90s uh, movies where you have the kids trying to save the ice rink and stuff like that, but like it feels earned when they save the Latin Quarter because the kids they essentially rebuild and repaint the Latin Quarter themselves. Whereas in the other films, like here in the West, it feels like a Deus Ex Machina comes in and saves like the rink or whatever the kids are trying to do. Whereas in this film, it's by the merits of the children themselves. And even when the superintendent comes to visit the Latin Quarter, they are able to organize this reception for him, essentially with maybe half a day or like two to three hours to spare. It's just, you know, just shows how um, dedicated and uh, ingenuity ingenuitive i'm trying to say like just how creative that these children are i just really like that and i also like how real the moments are with shun and with umi because as i mentioned earlier shun his birth is sort of up in the air so there's comes into question that umi's biological father maybe shun's biological father and so it has those two trying to deal with those emotions because you know they have these intimate moments together they click very well and romance is starting to flourish and then when this comes to light it sort of puts a damper on those things and they handle it very very well uh, it's it you and you can tell the hurt in both characters it's just, oh, I, like I said, it's just, just very, uh, so many moments for me to choose from. But I would have to say it was probably uh, the Latin Quarter when the superintendent comes and uh, visits uh, the children. That was probably my favorite favorite moment there. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I like that too. Yeah, so like, again, like it's strung along by a lot of these very quiet moments, these earned moments, these sincere moments. And again, like why I think, like one of my other weeb opinions was just like, this is the least fantastical studio yes. movie as like for sure again not barring with the wind rises again which i haven't seen but to say that this is just a snapshot snapshot of <laughs> japanese life how japanese people are nothing very much romanticized like you said like, it's a very earned moment between these two like one of my favorite interactions between those two specifically was again like the moment where they're out and about in yokohama and uh, Shun buys like meat buns essentially yes. and he's on his bite and like he puts one in his mouth from the wrapper and then he hands the wrapper to uh, Yumi and I was like oh my god that's so cute but it's like very sincere moments between like these two very much reserved individuals they're very much introverted both of them and yeah. it very much breaks the kind of go get it attitude of most Studio Ghibli protagonists so 
that's why I think it's like another one, like so distinct from Studio Ghibli and why I wonder if it would have served better if Hayao Miyazaki, or sorry, Goro Miyazaki would have went somewhere else with this. And most Studio Ghibli movies are adaptations. Same thing with this one, that it had a manga as its original source material. So, I mean, he doesn't need to stay at Studio Ghibli. And if he had taken this idea of adapting properties to another studio, I wonder if it would have done better. But I do think what you said as your weave opinion does contribute to it as well. So you want to move into the voice cast? Yes. Uh, just to talk a little bit about it, because I know like they, they, were, they were very great. So we just mainly focused on Umi, Shun, and Shun's father, Akio Kazuma. And the Japanese voice actor for Umi Mata, uh, Matsuzaki, she's uh, very, very um, pre- uh, prevalent in her uh, acting career because she does uh, a little bit of voice acting, but she's mainly known for her live action uh, voice acting. She won an award when she was in sixth grade, and that's what brought her into the career that she's done she's also known for her outstanding performance in before we vanish she was also in the japanese remake for of the uh american 2004 movie 51st states it's known as 51st kisses and she was also uh, ichigo kurosaki's mom in the 2018 uh live action version of bleach who was the uh, uh, English counterpart, Jay? Yeah, so you watched the Japanese. I watched the English dub. So for the English uh, voice actress for um, Yumi is Sarah Bolger, Bolger, B-O-L-G-E-R. And she's a Irish film actress where she mainly acts in TV series like The Tudors and Once Upon okay. a Time. Once Upon a Time, yes. And the only voice acting that she has done is in the Chronicle or the Spiderwick Chronicles, as well as Bioshock 2. So very young. Well, she's 20 something something. But yeah, very young <laughs> actress in voice acting. 20 something something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's not as experienced in the uh, voice uh, acting field, but she does have a very strong contribution to this as well so she does carry her weight and for everything that she does for yumi okay no no no, that's that's really good and so on to the japanese voice actor for shun cosma just looking at this guy's resume it seems like he's just a prodigy dude he was in a boy band known as v6 at the age of 14 he was the youngest band member and he he's also known for his live acting career he was in dramas known as uh, Katsu, Kisa Razu's Cat's Eye and Tiger and Dragons, um, which are uh, two dramas. He's known for his breakout role in Tokyo Tower, which was in 2005. And afterwards, he was noted for his role in Hana Yori Monoho. And in this film... He's also he also does the voice for the uh, deceased father for Umi, but he goes unaccredited. So he's he has a very wide range, and it seems like you know, like like I said, just the differences in what he can do because he was in dramas and uh, I think in Tokyo Tower it was sort of like a romance between uh, this uh, young kid and a much older woman and having to deal with societal implications on that. So 
like I said, his his range is very very wide. Shun for the English dub was uh, Aton Aton Yelchin, who is very much has done so much voice acting, but I know him most strongly as he plays the main lead in Troll Hunters, which is that okay. Guillermo del Toro uh, Netflix series. And of course, he passed away um, tragically oh, a few years no. ago. And but everyone probably knows him most readily as playing uh, Chekhov. He has a strong. He was he passed away very young, and he has a lot of voice acting, so I kind of just floating out there in the ether. So um, he carries shoes. So like his voice range is. He does the same thing as what you said. Is that he has this large. He has this presence as like a very strong, like he has this Chekhov kind of accent, but then he does mm-hmm. this very boyish, very stoic kind of um, low tenor kind of voice. And it's just pleasant to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like that, that, that's good to hear. Oh my goodness. Hit me in the feels. Uh, on to Akio Cosma. And it's just very interesting how you mentioned Goro uh, versus Hayao uh, Miyazaki because, oh my goodness, you want to talk about pedigree? The voice actor for this guy, now Amori, his pedigree takes the cake. So his father is an established, um, what's it called? I forgot. It's it's a it's a sort of, uh, I think it's called Buko Buno. It, it's it's a specific type of acting to Japan, and his father had basically made this uh, troupe, this dance troupe that embodies that, and it's known as the Raikadan Tempun Shinki, and his brother is also a big actor in that same troupe, and is also known for directing two other films which is known as A Crowd of Three and The Ravine of Goodbye, which The Ravine of Goodbye had won an award, and so did uh, his Crowd of Three. But this actor is no slouch either because he was, again, in Perfect Blue, which was in 2002. He was also in Helter Skelter in 2012. He was also in Parasite Part 1 in 2014. So... This guy, like I said, he comes from good stock and he carries his name very, very well. That is so odd because that is the opposite person they chose to do the English dub <laughs> for because the English dub for Shun's father is actually Chris Noth or Noth, yeah. N-O-T-H. And the only other voice performance he's done or as far as I can see from his IMDb is Lex Luthor from <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earth back in 2010. But uh, he's a very prolific TV actor, and I don't know who watches Law & Order, but he's Detective <laughs> Mike Logan. He's kind of like the Law & Order detective. He, or, he, no, he, he, he's the face of Law & Order? Well, or he's one of the faces. Either. He's one of the faces, yeah. You'll, if you ever see his face, you'll, you know who I'm talking about, but... <laughs> to say that of everything that you just said for the Japanese voice actor that played Shun's father and then for the English voice actor, it kind of feels like they were like, can we find a guy that speaks <laughs> English? But yeah, so it's very interesting. So he does have this like booming presence. Like he doesn't have yeah. a soft voice to him at all. He's kind of harsh in his tonality. 
But yeah, it's very odd that he listed all those credentials, and it's like, yeah, he was Lex Luthor one, like guest in that in that one movie. But I mean, to, to be fair, like in all, all all the other actors that I chose, like they, if anything, it's like dabbling, very using that term very loosely. They dabbled in voice acting, but like they're known for like their uh, uh, stage acting and in person acting as well. So like they they may have done like maybe one or uh, two more works than some of the English casts, but like it's kind of comparable if you're comparing like their live acting and their voice acting careers as well. Yeah, that's totally fair to me. Yeah, because like again, CEO Ghibli kind of goes out of their way to make sure that their voice cast is so well trained. So for a reason yeah. that they did pick these actors, which kind of feels disparate, but whatever reason or whoever the voice casting agent was they probably chose him for a good reason so i guess to close up sam unless we have something else to talk about i wanted to say that for me this is definitely a resurrect because one maybe in the same vein as arietti all these latter posts let's say 2005 2010 ghibli movies are probably being overlooked even though this did win the Japanese Oscars essentially for animation that year in 2011, mm-hmm. which is the Nippon Animation Award, I believe. It has a longer name, but it's basically the Japanese Oscars to dumb it down for myself. <laughs> and to say that this movie is such a departure from everything else that Studio Ghibli does deserves to be resurrected because you don't see a studio that's known for all these fantastical stories and folklore into Japanese culture to basically say, this is what Japanese culture or this is what Japanese history is. It's not sad. It's not dour. It's not, it's not reflecting on the tragedy that happened in the past. It's showing what happened after that. So to say that this is an excellent double feature with Grave of the Fireflies, which is again, a masterpiece I wouldn't go so far to say that this is a masterpiece, but it very much needs to be resurrected because it has a lot of cultural cachet or cultural capital that hasn't been really replicated in any other ways that I've seen recently. So I'm saying that it's a resurrect for those reasons. How about you, Sam? No, no, I, I agree with you. It definitely does need to be resurrected. And I'm glad that you had mentioned earlier, too, because we were talking about the characters, Umi and Shun how both of them they're a bit more introverted but the fact that they aren't the norm for uh the characters that are normally portrayed in the film especially in ghibli films they're done very well we see like uh for instance like even though they're both introverted like we see them get things done for instance umi when she starts becoming involved in the latin quartet like she essentially motivates these boys to essentially strip everything down and bear to rebuild everything and they were able to bring and garner people to come in and help and essentially rebuild bring a revival to the latin quartet and uh shun we get we see shun essentially invigorate and motivate umi because he's willing to speak out on his beliefs and he's shown to be passionate so even though like they're both reserved and they're both very hardworking and they stick to their studies they are both passionate about things that they like and i like seeing like that type of person in in uh, on the screen 
is very good because you know not everybody is extroverted and loud and you know sh- uh, shows their heart in their sleeves but like it's 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 good to show like that contrast that you know it's like hey you know uh introverts can be as uh potent as any other loud mouth that you see on the screen and they also have problems too that they have to deal with and this is how i think that they can deal with it or how they should deal with it and i know that this was a negative that i had mentioned earlier but i also do like the uh wholesome lighthearted feels that comes with this movie because as you talk as we talked about earlier like this the juxtaposition between this and grave of the fireflies grave of the fireflies is very very deep and dark and uh, it can put you in a, a, a bad uh, mental place because like it's war. That's what you have to do. Whereas with this one, like it deals with the horrors of war, but like it sort of like gives you hope at the end of it, you know, that you can come from it, even though you are hurting, you can find a life on the other side. You can make a way. So it's definitely worth a watch. And I agree with you. This does need to be, uh revisited and need to be revived right perfect yeah because if fireflies is about hurting then from up on poppy hill is about healing essentially and yeah that's a beautiful message to take away to 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 take a quote from uh my man vision what if grief if not love preserving right oh yeah okay that's perfect that should be on the tin box (laughs) yeah so that wraps up our 10-year discussion on from up on poppy hill a uh, product of goro miyazaki and hayao miyazaki working together under studio ghibli and we finished up the news from the fourth week of may 2021 and that brings a close to this episode we have a few more weeks left of the spring season we'll come back in a couple of weeks to talk about the summer season and the anime that we're looking forward to but that wraps up this episode sam before we go do you have anything to say for us fair girl who raised her flags in the morning sweet lass why send your thoughts to the sky you hope the wind helps them mingle with the crows to ask where their destination lies yo ho Through every weather, hoist the colors high. Heave ho through time's endeavor till the response arrives. 